Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. dropping off, and I'm wondering if I'm actually being heard. So I'm turning on the microphone for someone just to check. Are you hearing the broadcast? Area code 951. All righty. Area code 616, are you hearing the broadcast? Hey, Dr. Tim, it's Nancy. I'm in Michigan. Yes, I am. That's what I wanted to tell you. I just popped okay. on, and I'm hearing just fine. You 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 just popped on? Or, or the yep, broadcast? Yep, and I'm hearing it. And I'm, no, 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 hon. I just dialed up, and I'm hearing you just fine. All right, excellent. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for Thanks. the call. Blessings. You're welcome. There's another hand up. Area code 610, <laughs> is this Susan? Yeah, I've hung up and dialed several times, and I know Ann has been having trouble getting in, but now all of a sudden you're on, and Nancy, I don't know who Nancy is, but she's saying you're on, but she just came on. So maybe you and she came on at the same time. Who knows? Anyway, Okay. Who'd you hear okay, so voice? what you're saying is you weren't hearing anything, and that's why your number came on and dropped off? Yeah. I wasn't hearing anything, so I kept I dialed in a couple of times to see if it was me. So you didn't hear an, Anne, an intro or anything else, huh? Anne said she heard part of an intro or maybe the whole thing, and then you disappeared. And I came on maybe just too late for the intro. I came on about three minutes past 12, and you were gone. All right. Well, I'm here now. <laughs> I see that. I was That's busy good. reading an essay from Christian Sundberg's book, after after my usual intro, I was reading the uh, essay number 76, Breaking the Chain of Hurt. And you didn't hear any of that, huh? I did not. And I was doing my best. <laughs> but it's good to have you back. <laughs> you didn't have your fingers in your ears or anything. You were <laughs> No, nope, I You were trying to listen and you couldn't hear. Okay, <laughs> well... It's a great essay. Sorry you missed it. 
chain of hurt. Okay. Well, and if you didn't hear it, no one did. So I'll go back and read that again, unless you've got another comment or question to. No, share no. With us. Well, I'm there, but I was just wanted to make sure you were there because I told a friend of mine to dial in too, and he may be confused or maybe he didn't. I mean, he didn't. I just sent him the information because he would enjoy the show very much. All right, yeah, I've got it in front of me. <clears throat> All right, well, I'll mute you and I'll go read it, and then and you can put your hand up again if you want to make a comment. But I won't. I won't <laughs> okay. put the the burden of the show in your lap. Apparently, we've we've gone for uh, I don't know, maybe fifteen or eighteen <laughs> minutes with radio silence. So. All right, so we'll go back and we'll um, ask people to just, if this is your first show, if you're just tuning into this, please go to the archives and listen to the intro from another show because the intro apparently didn't get recorded today either. But I was reading um, from the book A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg, and one of the essays is titled breaking the chain of hurt. And the essay says, one of the reasons we are not condemned for our suboptimal choices is that God understands that we are often acting from a place where we ourselves have not received the love that we need. Now, when I read something like that, I think, oh boy, this is anthropomorphizing God. This is giving God human characteristics. God understands. God's going to give pity on us. Because, and I want to under—I want to underscore that this book also talks in different ways. That that's not the way it works. God is not a human being with a bigger brain than the average person. It's—it just doesn't work that way. You don't get punished because. You know, it's not like gravity punishes you when you step off a building and because you were bad in high school or because you stole something in grade school. Gravity just does what it does. The understanding here is that anybody who acts in a way that's harmful to themselves or somebody else is acting from the space where they have forgotten or yet to become aware of their true nature as love and their ability to get anything they need or want without hurting another person. And so the rest of this essay talks about how others act unlovingly and we become hurt and then we make choices from the resulting, quote, darkness, close quotes, that end up hurting others. The darkness they're referring to here is just the lack of direct conscious awareness of our true nature as love as the extension of creative energy into form so we buy into negative self-perceptions because others communicated them to us again they'll do a little bit of anthropomorphizing here and say indeed God has great compassion for the many ways in which we've not been loved yet often we do not practice compassion with ourselves. When others hurt us, it's not about us. It's about them. They're dealing with their own life situation, their own circumstances, their own constraints, their own beliefs, and perhaps most importantly, the pain of their own lack of the experience of their 
true nature as love. Those that hurt us are simply acting from their own place of lack of awareness of their true nature as love. The pain gets passed along in a chain, often from one generation to the next. But all the pain, all the failings, all the fearful actions and judgments and hurtful words, they're all arising from the place of lack of awareness of love. We can break the chain, this essay says. We can be brave enough to see hurtful actions for what they are, ignorance of our true nature as love. Others hurt us because they're hurt, and they hurt because they're temporarily blind to the love that is so nurturing to their soul. Rather than allowing ourselves to perpetuate the hurt, we can choose instead to see those hurtful actions for what they are, simple acts of ignor- that from ignorance to love. We can see them as that and put them aside. We don't feel like we need to attack them or correct them. We just extend love in that general area, in that direction. We can decide, rather than let them bring us down, we can decide to choose to respond by extending love in that moment. We can choose to extend love to ourselves in the face of hurtful actions. And we can also even choose to extend love to those who hurt us while they're acting from their own place of lack of awareness of love. This is a truly powerful choice for choosing to meet the hurtful actions of another with extension of love meets the problem at its source. It meets the hurt by giving it what it actually needs, love. Doing so allows the powerful light of source to slip into any situation. And when that happens, miracles can and do happen. We can break the chain of hurt And all it takes is our own choice to meet the ignorance of love with awareness of love. Now, if you have that book with you and you're reading along, you'll you'll notice that I've inserted words, you know, awareness of in front of the word love, extension of love instead of just the word love. And as I said, I'm trying to shift the wording away from attributing human drama and trauma characteristics or judgment or willfulness to God or light or love or the acts of the force of creation extending because that's where so many people so many religions so many individuals who are struggling to comprehend their life in a way that makes sense at that conscious logical level they've been trained and conditioned to attribute human characteristics to the flow of life and it doesn't really work the fact of the matter is everything about our life everything about the universe that we live in everything about mass and energy and is far more complex than our conscious logical mind will ever 
be able to conceive, much less to comprehend and then control. So, the core message in this essay, Breaking the Chain of Hurt, is in at least two, if not three or four, of Dr. Michael Rice's lectures. He has two-hour lectures that are available on DVD. And the, the concept that what's needed whenever a person is acting from pain or fear or sadness is awareness of their true nature as love, extending that energy to ourselves and to them, and refusing to buy into the world's view about how they should be punished, etc. So, this this energy of the the actual force of creative energy of life itself that is beating our hearts and digesting our food and keeping our breath moving even when we're not thinking about it is the same energy that animates all of life all the planets all the solar systems you know from that ultra expansive massive all the way down to the things, the smallest particles that our scientific instruments are tracking, and of course, the more they track those, quote, particle, particles, close quotes, the more they realize they're not a particle, they're simply an energy packet. And as best they can determine, these energy packets are popping in and out of existence at the quantum level. So, you know, this doesn't make sense to our conscious logical mind that is rooted in what Michael Rice would call the nine-bit mind, the carbon-based memory. And by nine bit, he's there referring to the Harvard research that says, in the period of time where about 10,000 brain cells are firing in the frontal lobes of the brain, and we're estimating that at least something like 20 trillion bits of data are hitting our senses, our conscious logical mind can only comprehend about nine individual bits. Nine single bits, not 900,000 or 9 million. So, you are not going to be able to make this make sense. To make sense of it means to make it fit some kind of a model of thought that you've put together related to the information that you're collecting through your five senses. 
right? Sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. And the energy of creation goes way beyond what can be recorded by those five senses. I believe I've read this one before, but I wanted to come back to essay number 44, which is titled Spirituality, the Search for What is Real. And the reason for that is because one of my favorite lines from Guy Finley's teachings is, there is nothing more practical than true spirituality. And this essay reads, true spirituality is the dwelling in what is real. It is not primarily adherence to ideas in the mind. This is an important distinction because as beings living in duality, we commonly feel that truth is to be found within certain ideas and not others. And yet, all ideas and all forms exist within the one thing that is, or what we sometimes call God, or source. Source transcends all the ideas and forms. This is what great spiritual teachers like Krishnamurti have been trying to get us to understand when they say the word is not the thing. A word is a symbol of a symbol. Dr. Michael Rice explains that as the human being thinks he or she is looking out through their eyes, but they're not. There's light or sound waves that come towards them and get registered in their eyes or their ears or as pressure on their skin, or as taste or smell. And that information stimulates the brain, and the brain searches back through its past to try to put together an image that makes sense to it from its past experiences, and that image then shows up in the person's mind. So the image in the person's mind is a symbol of what's actually happening out in the real world. This includes for a human being to stand in front of a mirror and look at a mirror. It's just the picture that shows up in the individual's mind is a symbol of the actuality of the energy system that we call the physical body or the energy system that we call the mirror or the wall or whatever. So the first thing that happens is there's a symbol created inside the mind. You could say brain equated to the the brain of the human being. And then the human being puts a word on the picture that he or she has in their mind, and now we have a symbol of a symbol a representation of a representation of the truth. That's why they're talking here about how our thoughts about the thing are not the same as the thing. So to back up and read this essay again, Spirituality, the Search for What is Real. And the essay reads, True spirituality is the dwelling 
in what is real. It is not primarily adherence to ideas in the mind. This is an important distinction because as beings living in duality, we commonly feel that truth is to be found within certain ideas and not in others. And yet all ideas of all form exist within the one thing that is, or what we sometimes call God or source. Source transcends all the ideas and forms. And at the most fundamental level, source, the truth of what is, is the most real thing there is. Spiritual truth, then, ultimately does not need to be taken on faith. We're talking about something that is actually real. In fact, it's far more real than that which we commonly experience day to day. Because it is real, we have absolutely nothing to fear in honestly searching for what is real and in exploring what we feel is real. Many people find it terrifying, however, to explore what they feel is real because they believe that the world is a terrible place or that life is terrible. Indeed, they have much evidence to convince them of this, quote, fact, close quotes. In fact, this reality will always give us evidence to support what we believe. Dr. Michael Rice talks about this extensively. There is the reticular activating system. There is the mind which is evidential. When we tell our mind, show us how we're right and the other person is wrong, that's all we're going to be able to see. In fact, this reality will always give us evidence to support what we believe. This occurs because what is fundamentally true is not our beliefs about them but our awareness itself. Nothing ever believed, conceived, or experienced without our own awareness of it. And thus, in order to actually discover what is real, we must be willing to truly and deeply explore the most challenging thing there is to explore. What would that be? Ourselves. We must be willing to truly and deeply explore ourselves. Spiritual growth can occur when one commits to the honest pursuit of what is real in one's self. This is a tough job. I've talked about it extensively in the past couple of years now because Several books I've run into speak about this better than many others. Two of them that I'll mention are Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and the other one is We Are the Luckiest by Laura McGowan. And Laura McGowan's second book, Push Off From Here, comes back to this topic of deep, fundamental honesty, again in her first and her second book. And both she and Glennon Doyle write very deeply, very honestly about how difficult it is once one decides I'm going to be more and more honest because we are, we're living in a culture 
that teaches us, conditions us, and rewards us for duplicity and dishonesty and errors of omission, etc., etc., etc. Spiritual con- a growth can occur when one commits to the honest pursuit of what is real in one's self. Doing so, however, takes considerable personal courage because it means one must be willing to feel what one actually feels and face what one actually is. It is far, far easier to place the blame on certain ideas or to cling to long-held beliefs for safety. It's far easier to do that than it is to drop the charade of the ego and allow oneself to actually experience everything, including the experience of uncertainty about what is real. But the whole charade of the ego is ultimately an illusion. It is not real, except that we've made it to be. Truth, on the other hand, will stand up to scrutiny because it is. But since the truth transcends the human mind, the human mind alone cannot fully discern it. Because consciousness transcends the objects of the mind that it beholds, the window to true discernment is a deep familiarity with that which is more real than one's mind. What is more real than your own mind? your awareness it's it's more real than your own brain it's more real than your thoughts about the energies that we call the external reality but the whole charade of the ego is ultimately an illusion it is not real except that we've made it to be truth will stand up to scrutiny because it just is what it is. But truth doesn't depend upon a human being to see it and interpret it and label it and put words on it. Truth is. And truth transcends the human mind. So the human mind alone cannot fully discern it. Because consciousness transcends the objects of the mind that it beholds, the window to true discernment is a deep familiarity with one's awareness itself. This is why meditation is such a valuable tool. It's simply exploring, quote, what actually is, close quotes. It's doing that by dwelling fully present in the moment instead of being lost in the many thoughts about the past and about the future and the thoughts that make up the illusory mind. Spirituality is the search for what is actually real. And there's nothing more practical than true spirituality, in Guy Finley's words.
So what does that mean? What's awareness? One of the essays is titled, Awareness Has No Opposite. And the essay reads, Awareness, here, the word awareness is synonymous with consciousness. Awareness slash consciousness is not a thing that has an opposite. It just is. All opposites exist within awareness. The thing that popped into my head was to say, it's it's like the ocean. The ocean just is. It doesn't have an opposite. A desert is not the opposite of an ocean. And all manner of life, plant life, fish, mammals, etc., exist within the ocean. Well, that's just one way to start to wrap your mind around the idea that consciousness contains your mind and your body and everything you think you see. Consciousness contains all of it. There is no opposite to all of it. So this essay goes on and reads, have you ever had an experience that wasn't your awareness of it? Have you ever had a thought that wasn't your own awareness of its thought? Even the experience of waking and sleeping, which appears to be gaining or losing consciousness, or the experience of considering dualistic ideas like existence and non-existence, all of this, these things are only known as you behold their forms and assign a meaning to them. All of the content in your physical life, while deeply convincing in its apparent and its apparent individual individuation and duality, all of that has only ever taken place in your awareness of it. Your awareness doesn't actually need a context to exist. Your awareness is simply that which is. It is that which has done those things and had the experience of being these other things, but it always remains the same. As such, you will always remain. Your true essence, your awareness, your consciousness, all that your local personality is will not be lost when your body dies. You will not be lost. Rather, you will simply awaken to all that you truly are. And the walk in the physical that you just took will be recognized as yet another adventure that you have taken, another, quote, form that you have been, close quotes. And all of this happens in the great context of creation itself, unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. 
who you are as consciousness contains what you call your body, all of the energies that you have ever experienced, all of your thoughts about yourself, and everything else. And the last one I'll read for today is always remember your light. You are a part of the light. And here I'm just going to add the words of creation. You are an unspeakably valuable and amazing fragment of that which is. You are spirit. You are brave and immortal spirit. Now you're having the experience of a body. You cannot be harmed. You cannot be forgotten. And you cannot be replaced. You are never alone. You are adored, held up, and celebrated by countless thousands upon thousands of those who know and cherish you. You are a spark of the divine flame which shines bright in all things. You are a fire in the illusion of darkness. You are the presence of love, uniquely expressed as only you can express. You are a powerful force, a mighty consciousness who has set out upon one of the greatest adventures thus far conceived, fully participating, and yet fully transcendent. Your every thought and intent speaks to the galaxies as they are your brothers and sisters. You are so wonderful that you are beyond description. You are a universe unto yourself and yet an ever-shimmering drop in the unspeakably brilliant ocean of the light. You are loved and you are love. As you take your walk in the physical, set aside time to listen with your deepest being rather than with your mind and allow yourself to remember what you are. You are light. You are the energy of creation expressing in form. You are consciousness. You as consciousness contain everything you see, every person you interact with, everything that you experience as an object or a thought. You as consciousness contain all of that. So hopefully you can get the idea from that that your conscious logical mind will never be able to wrap itself around who you, tru who you truly are.
So our call-in number is 563-999-3581. I thank everybody who was texting me earlier. I was not in a place where I could see my phone, and it was on silent mode, so I wasn't getting the messages that we were basically off the air for the first 15 minutes. So thank you for those text messages. And now we are, I think we've got about 10 minutes left, 9 minutes left for comments or questions based on the readings today. How How is this landing for you? I can't tell if Susan Bingham was putting her hand up again, so I will turn that on. Are you there, Susan? Uh, yep. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm here. Yeah. Um, I have been reading Brightman's book in parallel with John Brighton's book. John Brighton is a man who's in our Zoom group, and he sent us the PDF of a book he's been working on for a long time. It's really like his life work, an autobiography, but it's mainly about his thinking, about how to, I am in no place to summarize his work at this point, but he is approaching the same wish to become as, as to live in a state of fulfillment and, not fulfillment, forgiveness and and love and allowing and he is finding his way toward that through his own means. And he has he's had a very interesting past. He actually, even though he's a little older than the hippie movement, <clears throat> but he became interested in transcendental meditation and did that and had experiences where out-of-body experiences and was studying why and how that could happen and what that meant, how to elevate his own consciousness so that he's in, um, he's, I think he used the phrase, let's see if I can find it. Mm. I can't, I can't find it. Withdraw any negativity from your thoughts is what, how I remember it. So that you are experiencing experiencing life in an allowing mode, observing and seeing the best. I'm making this my own words again. And um, he did say um, he 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 wants to study the scientific nature of attention and awareness of being aware his own consciousness, the fact that we are conscious. And I found a sentence. Um, I'm looking for the further insights into the scientific nature of attention, especially its psychotransformative powers. That's a big pile of words, but just so that I think what he means is our own ability to transform ourselves. And he calls that the central theme of his quest. I have written to him, as I said, and I hope he listens to the radio show. Um, he goes on to say, the only link that I could discern that brought science and the transformative tradition closer was the notion of vibrations 
After all, vibrations are so powerfully experienced by every individual, which we tend to express in whatever prosaic language. Science broke from this limitation by how it rendered vibratory phenomena into finely measured wave oscillations. The speed and frequency, in other words, the speed and frequency of sound, the frequency of electromagnetic spectrum, and the rhythmic biology, biological parameters, like the heartbeat and so on. Now I'm way out of myself. I can't even explain what I'm reading. But I'm thinking about his experience with psychedelics. He did not take drugs, but tried to find his way to enlightened states of mind in his own way. And he has studied Gurdjieff and Ospensky, um, and he's studying his own out-of-body experiences. And um, how, when we're in a state of tremendous observing something very beautiful or we're in a hyper-focused state of attention because we're in great danger, how our mental vibrations change and um, we become actually sort of super capable or super aware or focused. Anyway, I'm rambling all over the place because I'm not in a position yet to, to, to explain what he's doing, but I'm thinking he would love um, the radio show and he would like... Um, the way of mastery very much and Sunberg's book. So I don't know, that's not a question or anything, but. Um, well, I think, you know, just based on what little you've read about from his book, that it's very, very similar. The idea is, you know, he was talking about vibrations and we've labeled them. Well, as soon as we label something, we minimize it. Right? We mm-hmm. we try to distill it down into something that our conscious logical mind can comprehend or that we can get a word to represent it. And you know, it's it's there's an insanity there with our trying to break everything down into something that our conscious logical minds can comprehend. And yet yeah. that's you know, that's basically assuming that we are at the top of what could be in terms of comprehension and experience and that's just you know unweaning arrogance to think that we're at the top of everything that could be but can't even begin to comprehend how we got here and how everything else in our experience came came into being or creation. We're having a right. technical difficulties today. And so <laughs> th- that's, that's very much like what I, I was hearing in the words that you were saying from his experience is that these are just vibratory energies, but as soon as we label them and try and keep them crunched down into something that our conscious logical mind or our language can comprehend or communicate to somebody else, we've done a, a, a serious, Krishnamurti would say, violence to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, like the, it's like the two very, very spiritual 
a very, very old meditator sitting on a bench, and they're just quietly sitting there in the park, and all of a sudden one of them bursts into uproarious laughter. And he points at this energy field in front of him, and he says to his friend, they call that a tree. And the other person <laughs> just laughs and laughs and laughs, as though you could yeah. take this energy field within energy fields within energy fields, which is, you know, layers of bark and root system and, and you know, almost hydraulics for sucking up nutrients and water up into the leaves and, and, and all of the ways that it's a home for insects and birds and other animals and just represent it by the word tree. Yeah, yeah, that's a tree. Well, we do that level of reductionist, you know, minimalization. Yeah, we do that every time we label a person. We say, oh, that's just Joan. Oh, that's just Larry. Mm -hmm. And we assume we know the person because we know some of the patterns we've experienced with them or we know their name. Um, You know what's really interesting to me, though, is... In the Hindu tradition, which Tim Bingham and I studied for 10 years very um, intensely with a wonderful uh, teacher in New York who was also an intellect, uh, intellectual. He had gotten a Ph.D. or something in Col- at Columbia. The, there are categories of types of devotees in the Hindu tradition. One is called the Bhakta, or Bhakta who, who is finds God through devotion, worship, adoration. Another one is uh, Raja Yogin, who finds God through doing good works. And, of course, these aren't clear categories. But the one that interests me, and I think I've met one in John Brayton, this friend who's on our Zoom group, is the Jnana Yoginis, or Yogins, the ones who try to find God through the intellect. And it's true. He's saying you can't get there, but that's how he he is, his mind. He asks the best questions, and he bores into things. And um, there's a place for that, and each one of them is a worshiper or a, a, a seeker or something. So it's a legitimate path. I feel as if um, our our intellects, yes, we can't get there, but on the other hand, they get a bad rap on this radio show. And I feel as if I, I want to defend our efforts to understand things with our conscious logical mind. I think that's a good thing to do. Well, and we're, no one's saying that it's a bad thing to do. What we're saying is that any time we do that and we're left with something that's less than loving, we can use that mm-hmm. as the awareness that we're in error, that we've made a misstep, or we are yeah. you know, reducing something down to far less than you know, what it, its truth is, and we're probably going to start making judgments and decisions and taking actions that are hurtful to ourselves and others because we're just blind to the truth of the whole truth of existence. Mm. And, and and the reading I was just doing, it was just uh, the whole thing about people who are not able to see the whole truth of existence, their true nature mm. as part of creation, 
the truth of life itself, etc. Those are the only ones that can end up doing things that are hurtful to themselves and others because they're not seeing the truth of life, the truth of their nature, the truth of the nature of everyone around them. So, we have gone through our full hour. Thank you so much for chipping in here near the end. I will mute you so you can listen to the second hour. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. I apologize for being late. (laughs) No worries. Have a great show. Blessings. Thank you. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. And today is Monday, April the 10th, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1. That puts you in the queue to talk to us. We'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. I apologize, I've got hiccups. <laughs> no. I hope you all had a blessed uh, Resurrection Weekend celebration. Uh, we had a, a really good time. We uh, went to my father's church to thank them uh, personally for uh, sending the food and stuff during father's funeral. And uh they have a new preacher, so we really enjoyed, you know, getting to meet him. And then afterwards, uh, we went over to my stepson's house, and he had everybody over there, and we all had, we shared in a meal, and the little kids did Easter egg hunts, and so it was a good day all the way around. Beautiful weather, about 65 degrees or something like that, so today is absolutely beautiful. And either this afternoon or tomorrow, Michael and I will be back out in the garden again and getting started with some of that. We had brought these huge blueberry bushes from my dad's farm so that we could take care of them here. So we transplanted those and we've got some things to put in to make, you know, its transition from there to here so that it'll continue growing and producing and learning all about blueberries. And uh, I had posted on Facebook something about bringing back Dad's blueberry trees. And someone said that they didn't realize there were such a thing as blueberry trees. I said, well, they're actually bushes, but they're about five and a half feet tall. And as Michael and I were doing some YouTube videos to learn about pruning them back and things like that, we realized, we found, we came to realize that a blueberry bush can live for 10, 15, 20 years and they can actually get about 10 feet tall. So I guess in a way they are a tree. So we're learning and we're starting to get out in the yard and get things going again. And so, you know, new life, bringing into action. And uh, I'm waiting on Michael to dial in. Haven't made any changes lately on the website, but if you do run across something that's not working, please let me know. We did have a lady contact us, so... Um, just got the email this morning, and she said that she was on the website and found that the book was only one chapter of it in French, and she speaks fluent French and English, and so 
she has a friend that is doing the forgiveness work, and she wants to translate its entirety into French, and her friend is going to read it after she does the translation work to make sure that she has picked up the forgiveness work, the, the translation of it, that it's not just translating the words but taking the meaning. And so we're excited about getting that added to our uh, repertoire. <laughs> I haven't heard from the lady who's supposed to be translating it into Mandarin, so I'm not sure how that's coming along. But it is growing and spreading and reaching more and more people. And we are glad that you are with us today. And so at this time, I'm going to welcome Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here and that we get to move forward in this awesome conversation about first century Aramaic forgiveness. Jeannie and I actually went to our chiropractor this morning, and uh, he was having some physical challenges, so we did a little work with him and brought forward this idea, first time we've had the opportunity to do it with him, of first century Aramaic forgiveness being a way to remove from physiology energetic patterns that don't belong there. And it was kind of interesting to see his response that it was sort of like a revelation and yet it was sort of like, well, of course, that, of course that's the sensible thing. Of course that would be it. And spoke about the, uh, the breath as key and recognizing that when we withhold breath, which was a contributor to this young man's physical challenges today, and immediately as I coached him into, so notice that all of your breath, I just invite everybody to take a look. All of your breath is moving down in your belly, and it appears to be just a little less than impossible for you to vote. Now, I've got hiccups too, Jeannie. Pass them on. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, so he really noticed as he paid attention to his breath and moved it up into his chest how his whole body, especially his low back where there was pain going on, pain dissipated, disappeared. We hadn't been able to adjust the hip that was creating pain. And after he did that, just a little bit of breath work, a little bit of energy field work, whereas the spot where his challenge was, he'd had chiropractors who'd adjusted over the last couple of days, but it just wouldn't adjust. And as he let his breath go down into his pelvis, down into his legs, all of a sudden, I hardly even had to adjust him. I just rolled him just the slightest bit and pop, there it went, moved. Breath is such a key, you know, in the Aramaic, if you go back to the creation story, it doesn't say that, quote-unquote, God sent out his spirit. It says God sent out his breath. And where we withdraw breath, we withdraw life from the tissue structure. So you have, I shared your story with him about the conference you took the young people to several years ago. Maybe you want to just share that story yeah, with everybody. I know they've heard uh, it before, but this is one you can't hear too often. Yeah, I went to a youth conference, took a bunch of uh, kids, and one of the speakers was a Jewish man, and he said that in their native language, 
that the name of God is not really pronounceable. It's more like the breath, like, huh. And so he said, so when you're born and you take your first breath, are you alive because you took your first breath or because you first spoke God's name? And if you choose to die, is it because you take your last breath or because you quit speaking God's name? So I hold the space for everybody to choose to breathe eternally and keep the vitality of the breath alive in every cell of your structure with every breath. It's a really big deal, really key principle. And beyond that, I'll check first and see, Ms. Jean, do we have anything happening in the chat room or anybody in the uh, phone queue with a hand up? Questions from the uh, app? Now, I shared with them that I had gotten an email this morning, a uh, lady wanting to do the translation into French. And yes, we still awesome. haven't heard from the lady that's translating into Mandarin. But um, don't have any questions and no hands up, and no comments in the chat room. It's all quiet. Cool. Well, what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm actually working on an article on forgiveness from the Course in Miracles, some of the the basic principles of the Course in Miracles I'm integrating into this article. It's not complete yet, so I might have a little hesitation, but I want to share it with you to see if anyone has any feedback, any thoughts to add, text to me, or, you know, any things that occur to you that might augment this. I'm looking to make as concise a picture of the Course's view of forgiveness, of course, supported by the Aramaic. It wasn't until after I learned and understood what forgiveness was and how it was done from the Aramaic that I recognized the instructions were right there in A Course in Miracles, specific step-by-step instructions. So the article starts out with, what is the world? How do I forgive? Some of you are probably familiar with either our two-hour video workshop or the 30-minute YouTube video on what is the world. That will tie right into the uh, the article that I'm going to share today. So if you want to pick that up, you can go to YouTube and type in Michael Rice. It'll take you to our YouTube channel. And then look down the list or do a search for what is the world. 30 or 32-minute video there. A sort of a synopsis of what's presented in the two-hour what used to be a DVD, but is now available. Also, of course, there's a download, but <clears throat> that 30-minute one hits all the highlights. So the opening words of the lesson in The Course of Miracles, What is the World? You've heard me say it a thousand times because I think this is the most misunderstood and one of the most important lessons in the Course. The world is false perception. You know, at the end of that sentence, there's a period, period. You know, it's done. It isn't the world is, bodies, the world is, the world is, the world is. The whole idea is to recognize that the mind is generating the world that we see. So the seemingly real world of forms, which are but pictures generated by the mind. Now, recognize that the mind is a conversion device. Much like you know, a few years back, you might remember when they changed uh, what was a, 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 a form of, of broadcast in the broadcast system from
from analog, which means pictures, to digital. They changed that over. And so people who had the old-style TVs that didn't have a converter from digital to turn it into a picture had to go out and buy a converter. Or the government, in their great wisdom, decided that they needed, I guess, to keep that brainwasher TV going. So anybody that didn't go out and buy one, they said, we'll buy it for you. We'll pay for it. I want to keep you hooked on that, too. So they put a converter box in, and now instead of an analog signal coming in and the TV converting into pictures, a digital signal comes in, and with a digital converter, that signal comes in and the box converts it to a picture. Your brain is that. Your brain slash your mind, not equating them, but connecting them, converts thoughts. I think it's just such an important principle to get converts, pardon me, thoughts into pictures. You have a digital converter box. So the thoughts you think turn into the picture world that you think you see outside of you. But that's a false concept. We've all been taught we open our eyes and we see what's happening in the world. That's just a simple, plain fraud. It's not true. So the seemingly real world of forms, you know, trees, bodies, what have you, are but pictures generated by a mind based on partial information separated out of, separated, pardon me, out of the given truth born of error. So the world is false perception born of error. The only aim of true forgiveness is the collapse of perception and the correction of error in the mind. That's the bottom line of forgiveness. Now, notice we live in a culture that says forgiveness about how I'm going to let you off the hook and make you feel better, make me feel better. That's it. I just need to let you off the hook for the fact that my mind is producing pain. No. The only aim of forgiveness is the collapse of perception and correct the errors in the mind. This thing called perception is a symbol. So, so we stand in a world of actuality, the world the Creator created. You'll remember I've quoted several times the Harvard research that says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells are firing, the max amount of data that goes into conscious awareness is nine bits. So we have this 9-bit perceptual screen, and underneath it, there are 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity happening. It has been estimated that in the actual world that the senses are reaching out to, that the mind responds with 10,000, approximately 10,000 brain cells firing, that the actuality may contain as much as 20 trillion bits of data. So... This thing we call perception, the nine-bit mind, gives us this picture, is a symbol, so a nine-bit symbol of a what might be as much as a 20 trillion-bit world. So if we call the actual world as created by the creator truth, the nine-bit mind gives us a symbol of that actual creation. The body and all forms are appearances They're misperceptions, constructs made by the mind out of fragments of information that we call thought disorders. 
So when a body shows up in some sort of pain, it is because there is a thought disorder behind that picture. If I'm feeling pain and I'm looking at the body that I call Bill over there, why am I in pain? Because of something Bill did? No. Because something's resonating in me in the way of a thought disorder that I'm putting into my brain's image of Bill. And when we replace that construct called perception with truth, then we'll move beyond what we call sight. We think we're seeing things out there. The truth is the eye sees nothing. The eye is a one-way valve. Light energy comes in. That energy hits the brain and causes brain cells to fire. So content moves within and creates the picture world that we see. But what the Course is alluding to here is that there is the ability to conceive of and to understand it. And it's like we don't even have a definition for this state of experience yet, but that the Course calls vision. So when I can, rather than count on my mind taking pieces of things and turning them into pictures, and I'm thinking that's what's actually out there, with vision, I get to interact with the actuality, and I get to comprehend it and understand it for the truth that it is, rather than comprehend and understand what I see, which is just a reflection of what I've projected into my brain's image of whatever it is that I think I'm looking at. And the Course goes on here to say, and with this vision, I will look upon a world and myself with charity and love. So whatever somebody's doing, the most horrible actor, when I'm in vision, when I'm connected to active present love, then I look on everything through that filter. And this is the word that Yeshua used when he spoke of, or when he was asked the question, what's most important in the law? Incidentally, the word law not meaning the rule of a superior, as our culture would teach us, but law being the way life works. What's most important? Yeshua says, you've got to have rachma. He didn't say love God, love neighbor as yourself. He said of rachma for the creator, for neighbor. And by so doing, you maintain self. So when we're living from being, then charity and compassion are present with us. So words, so, we, so the mind brings in information, and depending what that information is from the actuality that resonates, we get a symbol, a picture. Then we name that picture something with a word. So we've made up misperceptions of what the actuality is and think that the constructs our mind show us are actually true when in fact you know we have the actuality 20 trillion bit world we have perception a nine bit mind a nine bit picture that's one generation away from the actuality and then we name it <laughs> that's two generations twice removed and the lesson what is the world makes the point these pictures generated by the mind quote, have not left their source. In other words, 
any picture world that you hold is reflective of what's inside of you. And in another spot, the Course goes on to say, and these pictures produce a dense cover over truth. So if I hold some unresolved pain, rage, hate, fear, whatever it is, and the actuality in the world resonates that in me, then my perceptual mind constructs a picture out of that rage, fear, hate, vengeance, whatever it happens to be. And now my mind generates a picture that I plaster over top of and withhold the actuality from myself. And the Course gives a very succinct um, understanding of what that does. And it says, there is nothing so blinding as perception of form. For sight of form means understanding has been obscured. So if you're looking at something and you're understanding from what that picture is, what that construct is in your mind, you can rest assured that the actuality of whatever it is you think you're looking at has been obscured from you. So eyes, blinded by perception, the Course says are made not to see. That nothing else, eyes are made that nothing else but form will be perceived. In other words, as long as we're looking, our brain is stuck with pictures. Pictures that reflect what's resonated in us. Pictures that, re- re- uh, that reflect a partial world. And the purpose of forgiveness is to undo this blindness. Literally, perception. The air that covers truth. That's the challenge to be removed. And anytime you think of the word forgive, please think of removal rather than letting somebody off the hook. So if one lives in blindness of truth, how does one come to believe a a lie and call it truth? Well, it's really easy. An event occurs in the world. That event, taken in by my senses, resonates certain information in me. The information that's resonated in me makes up a world of form, a world of pictures that I think I see out there but is actually resonant within my own mind. When I insist that what I'm seeing is true and accurate, that it is truth, so I've taken a 9-bit picture and called it the truth about a 20 trillion bit world, which when you think about that's pretty silly, And by labeling it truth, I'm now living in blindness to truth. There's no room for truth to come in. So blindness to truth will remain no longer, the Course says, than the thought that gave it birth is cherished. Back to that lesson on what is the world. So I'm drawing on different ideas from the Course, but focused around this, what is the world? Blindness to truth will remain no longer than the thought that gave it birth is cherished. In other words, if, if somebody comes along and resonates in you a thought of, that's based in hostility, then you'll produce a picture and you'll swear that the picture holding the hostility belongs to whoever you think you're looking at. And when you do, then you're sure that that attribute belongs to someone else 
while you're the person who's feeling it. And it's based on thoughts resonated by something that happens in the actuality. And so let's say it's an angry thought. And you say, well, okay, I'm ready to get rid of all my anger and fear. I'm ready to be done with it. I'm ready to get into the actual world of the Creator. Yes, 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 I'm ready for it. But in order to have that, you have to give up this rage-based thought. But your rage-based thought is something that you think protects you. And so you want to make sure, just in case, at some point in the future, I need it, I'm going to keep it. Now, you may say, oh, I don't want to deal with this rage anymore. I want to be finished with my rage. I want to be out of rage. I want to be done with it. But just let me keep enough of it to protect myself. Well, now what you said is you cherish that rage-based thought, and it can't be removed from you. And so you're going to tend to continue to generate a world based in that rage-based thought. And one day it might look like Bill, and another day it might look like Harry, and the next day it might look like Hortense, and then it might look like Mary and Charlie and, you know, anybody else that's handy. Or it might even be, that thought might even be used to help your brain to build its brain's picture of you as you look in the mirror. So it's time to be willing. Am I willing to give up every, you know, that lesson in the course that says, in my defenselessness, my safety lies? I actually like to add another word to that. In my defenselessness, my power and safety lies. So am I willing to move to a place where I give up every thought of attack in order that defense can disappear? So what does it take to rid ourselves of the thought that generates the appearance of form, this fake but real-looking world? What has to happen? First of all, we need to start to look at words because many people live by words, and the words they use generate images in the mind, and therefore they exist in that world of pictures based in words. And the Course refers to that as the world of darkness. And what's needed here is an action of mind. Now, if you listen to the world, they would tend to tell you that, well, you just need to talk about it. Well, you just need to explain it. Well, you know, if you accuse others of being wrong, then, you know, you might get somewhere. Or we could argue using symbols of symbols, words. Do you think any of that's going to work? None of the above. Explaining, trying to understand or figure out the world of false perception with words is 100% futile. You remember from the codependence work, for those who are in the codependence intensive, the number one pseudo-solution of the non-being mind is, if I could just figure this out. Well, you can't figure it out. So resolving pain or held traumas through any of the mechanisms I just talked about, that I just listed, is a total waste of breath. Another thing to understand here is that all perception, that is form, 
and words, symbols of form, are autobiographical. In other words, they tell us first about the content of our own minds before they tell us about the world that we think we're looking at. And when you think about, you know, the pictures in the mind are symbols, words are symbols of symbols, it's pretty silly to think that symbols of symbols made up by us are going to explain the truth of what's actually going on. It's never going to happen. The reverse is true. It's going to be the collapsing of those things that will take us to the point where finally vision will be available and healing occurs. So the Course talks about the fact that there's a universal experience. can't be done with theology. can't be done with words. This universal experience of love is the answer to the question. And where to put that in some sort of logical sequence or trying to make it logical, it isn't a logical process. It isn't an intellectual process. It isn't going to happen by figuring it out. The Course says that universal experience is beyond what can be taught and that only the actual work of forgiveness can do that. From the section on the clarification of terms, the Course says, words cannot express what lies beyond them. Now, if we've endowed words with this magic power to teach or even speak the truth, we'll get lost in that world of words and void the experience of love the Course aims at preparing us for. Viewing words, being known for our much speaking, and leaving forgiveness undone leaves us filled with and hypnotized by words instead of the direct experience of the presence of love. Now again, our words and perceptions always tell us more about the content of our own minds than the world we think we're looking at and that we pretend is outside of us. Perception is but a construct of the mind and exists nowhere but in the mind of the perceiver. The fact that perception comes from a particular mind is infallible proof of what is in that particular mind. As the Course says, I've given this all the meaning it has for me. Now, the meaning that my mind shows me for something may or may not describe actually what's happening for another. The one thing we can be assured of is that it is always accurate about the content of my mind. Now, I can approach something from one of two places. In order to, you know, there's an old saying in the AA circles, if you spot it, you got it. Now, there are two positions from which you can spot something. One, you've resolved it, you've worked through the energy that's needed to be cleaned up around it, and two, you haven't touched it. If you have resolved it, then you'll see something happening because you've been there, done that. That's how you got the brain cells. That's how you can see it. But if your physiology remains totally and completely relaxed and you're at in a perfect state of serenity, then you've got something that you've worked through. On the other hand, if you're all upset and disturbed and about something, 
you spot it because you got it. And of course, the mind wants to, you know, people who are belong, members of the one world religion to blame. It's all everybody else's fault. We're talking about somebody else in that situation. But the content that my mind is showing me tells me something about me. And when I'm open to that, things change. Now, each person wants to, or tends to at least, want to make the the denied, the dissociated, and disturbing and painful meanings they hold that they feel or, or cannot face directly true about others. And that's why they're projected. And projection works when I deny something, when I deny it, I dissociate from it. When I dissociate from it, if something comes along and resonates it, I never see the underlying energy, but I see the end result. I see the picture connected to that. Only now, because I'm blaming you, I see the picture connected to my brain's image of you. And I'm sure that it must be your fault or your problem. So again, denial is thinking or speaking as of something outside of us, is the cause of what's moving inside of us, and or blaming another for the way we're using our own minds. Am I using my mind to keep me in disturbance, in pain, in turmoil, in trauma? If I am, I have to give up pretending that somebody else is making me do that and recognize I'm doing it because I'm doing it. So when we play the game of you made me mad, you made me sad, you hurt me, that disturbs me, I'm only thinking or feeling it's because of you, liar, liar, pants on fire. It's just not true. I'm thinking it because... And truly, it isn't an act of thinking, but we call it that in the world. This is moving in me because it's in me. When I stop thinking, oh, I'm only feeling so bad because look at how you looked at me. Look what you said to me. That's why. No, excuse me. It's you that's using your mind to create all that trauma. What if you just gave it? What if you just gave it up? How much easier would life be? How much more fun would it be if I'm willing to own and quickly give up and, and, and in partnership with someone who's willing to own and quickly give up those things rather than, no, I'm, I'm going to stay in this misery because of what you did. No. The day that I own that I'm staying in this misery because of what I'm doing, I now have a mechanism for working through it because I can now start to see the evidence that makes it mine and start to forgive that evidence, start to move through that. So the conversation about projection needs to go. You made me sad. You hurt me. That disturbs me. So when one's in that dissociated state, they have the inability to directly access what's been denied and what's being projected, put into our brain's image of another, literally building that world, which one? The world of false perception that we see and hallucinate is outside of us. Rather, those first words in that lesson, it's hard for many people to get that. The world is false perception. That's the world of perception the Course is aiming to correct. This internally generated world is false perception, and it has not left its source. It's still right there within you. That's why you're doing it again. And when, if that's not the way you want to function, if that's not the way you want to feel, what do you need to change within you in order to change it? Because the whole world's stuck on, you have to change it for me because it's your fault that I'm thinking this way. That's the essence of denial. So this is 100% an inside job. 
Through denial, we shut ourselves out of the experience of ourselves as the active presence of love. That's what cuts us off from it. So a good question to always ask yourself is, if they're the one with the problem, why am I the one with the pain and disturbance? And, of course, we'll get people who will try to convince us by telling us that they've arrived. They'll have all kinds of ways of convincing you that they're the authority. The active presence of love in each one of us is the authority. Does that make sense? The active presence of love inside of each one of us is the authority. So if I have to tell somebody I've arrived, Jesus told me, I, 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 that person is just trying to convince themselves. And of course, by having to do that, they're proving that they've not arrived where they're pretending to be. So once again, the, the course goes back to, there's no answer. One of the games of the mind, well, just give me the answer. Give me the answer. Give me the answer. I want the answer. Just give me the answer. No. What the tools aim to give you. The tools aim to give you is not an answer, but an experience of the presence of love. A, a result of forgiveness. So the Course at one point says, seek only this. And don't let theology delay you. Don't get into the argument of the nitpicking that people can do because that's all just an intellectual distraction. So how do you do this thing called forgiveness? Well, if you go to Chapter 5, Paragraph 6, Section 7, the Course says, Your part is to return your thinking to the point at which your error was made. Oh, gee, does that mean I have to lay on the psychiatrist's couch for 25 years and, and find the deep, dark, dirty, nasty thing that happened to me? Then it'll be okay? No, that's searching through memory for it. Allowing your mind to return to the point where the original energy was engaged and taken into the system. You know, if it's a power person dynamic, let's say with a parent. Remember, the parent has more power over the child than the child does, is not functioning as love, and... The child perceives it as survival. So if the adult's going into this fit of rage, how do I remember? what? If I'm enraged today, how do I remember? How do I get to that? I don't do it through memory. I do it through forgiveness. It's a function of forgiveness. So Course says, your part is to simply allow all obstacles that you've interposed between you, the son or daughter of the Creator, and the Father, allow those things to be removed, quietly removed, it says, forever. Go over every use we have for fear or any form of hostility. 
And now that the thought that gave birth to that world of pain perception is no longer cherished, that it has no value to you, it can be removed. If you have the slightest use for either a thought of attack or defense, it can't be removed from you even if you want it to be removed. So all that needs to be done is to collapse the world of false perception. In the lesson on the two worlds, the Course says forgiveness is the only single-edged sword that accomplishes the curriculum of the Course. Forgiveness removes content. So the world, you know, we started this lesson out, what is the world? The world is not a place. It's not a thing. It's not a body. It's not trees. It's not stars. It's not, it's not what you're trying to forgive. It's a state of mind. It's a state of false perception. The place that we've been trained is out there is not. It's a trick. No material world exists except it's a hologram reflecting a state of mind that this particular lesson says is born of error. So this world of pictures is a construct made up out of errant, unresolved past thoughts in a mind. The material world, what we call stuff. Now let's listen to Einstein here. Einstein says, on such things as matter, we've been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy, energy whose vibrations have been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. Material world is false. It's false perception. It's a picture. It's an appearance born of error in the mind. It seems to exist only because we hold thought that produce that picture. So we hold the thoughts that produce the picture of the world of pain perception that we think is imposed on us from the outside. We think we see it. But in fact, what we see is a hologram generated by the mind. It's a holographic projection based on unforgiven content acquired in the past. Generations and generations of it. There's no life in the holograms. There's no life in the symbols, words, the multitude of words that we try to explain something with does not accept, exist except as the world made up by me to take the place of what the Creator gave me in creation. Since forgiveness is almost universally confused with pardoning, and therefore misperceived, misused, and, or, or missed altogether, and therefore left undone, you need to come to the point where you can delineate the steps in forgiving. Or you're not forgiving. You know, if I... Let's imagine that... Uh, Somebody asks me what I do to drive a car. 
Well, there's a set of principles involved in driving the car. You know, there's a key. Now, the key might be a mechanical key that I put in in the lock, or it might be a key fob, but there's a key. The key makes a connection, turns the ignition on. There's a starter, there's a starter motor, unless it's an electric car, and then I just need to open the pathway for the electricity to flow through it. I don't need to start anything. But there's some basic principles driving a car. It's got wheels. Well, gee, is it eight wheels or four wheels or three wheels? Well, there are all sorts. But there are basic principles involved. I find it understanding that you can ask 99.9% .9 of people how to forgive, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I forgive. And when you say, how do you do that? They can't say a word about it. If you can't speak about how you forgive, but you say you do forgive, you've got to be tricking yourself. Now, the world, again, this world between our ears, false perception, born of error that has not left its source, The Course says, but demonstrates an ancient truth. You will believe that others do to you exactly what you think you did to them, but once deluded into blaming them, you will not see the cause of what they, your projections, do, because you want the guilt to rest on them. How childish is this petulant device to keep your innocence? By the pretense of pushing guilt outside of yourself, Putting it outside of yourself means putting it into an image in your brain that you think is outside of you, but never letting it go. Projecting it into your brain's image of someone, but never letting it go. So the healing process requires looking within. Carl Jung says it beautifully. Those who look without dream, those who look within awaken. So remembering that you know, we have basically what we might refer to as a nine-bit processor, not meaning that absolutely literally, but basically that's it. And that in us, there is this super processor that when we invite it into activity, can process, can break the links, can dissolve what is false. In Aramaic, it's called Rukutukutsha. Feminine elemental force in us that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. It could be spoken of as the higher power, the superconscious, the subconscious, primordial X. The Greeks translated out of the ancient Aramaic as the Holy Spirit. But there's nothing there about a disembodied spirit being. It speaks of an actual feminine elemental force in us. So the Course here says, bring each terrible effect to that power, whatever you choose to call it that you may look together on its foolish cause and laugh. And then the Course goes on to say, the secret of healing is but this. You are doing this to yourself. No matter what the form of the attack, this is still true. Because it is in your perception you are being assaulted. And the root of that perception, hidden, is the thought of either defense or attack. 
that energetically is a call for that experience to come to you. Forgiveness is the key to giving up your call for attack. And will result in defenselessness and safety. Now, in the context of this, remember to never forgive anyone, never forgive yourself, but continuously, that is, remove defense and attack continuously. You're going to have to ultimately, if you have a mind that's in pain and turmoil, you're going to have to do the thing that you're most terrified to do, and that is, and this is a quote from the Course, you may wonder why you must look upon your hatred and realize its full extent. You must uncover the part of your mind that you've hidden from yourself that produces this whole world, this whole construct called perception. So the one important, the only question, and it can be framed in several different ways, is how do I collapse this world of false perception? How do I forgive? How do I remove this loveless world of holograms that are so detailed and real from my mind. Interesting statement in Lesson 247, forgiveness is the only means whereby Christ's vision comes to me. Without forgiveness, I'm still as blind as... (laughs) And I see these projections rising to attack me. How is it done? In Lesson 164... We're told, remember correctly, it's paragraph 8 in Lesson 164, open the curtain in your practicing by merely letting go all the things you think you want. Notice that you're never upset about something as long as everybody's fulfilling all the goals you have for them. Notice you're only upset when someone violates a goal that you hold for them. You only get angry with people. You only become disturbed with people, or you pretend to be angry with people and disturbed with people. Really, it's just anger and disturbance in your own field. But the only time that you're an upset, unless you're just a generally miserable person, is when someone isn't fulfilling the goals that you hold for them. So here's the core of forgiveness, a la first century Aramaic Yeshua. And the Course in Miracles, Lesson 164. Open a curtain in your practicing by merely letting go all the things you think you want. In other words, you cancel your goal. In Aramaic, the word forgive is shebag, and it literally translates to cancel. The Course refers to your goals as your trifling treasures. You know, if, if you recognize that you've given over the truth of your being as this awesome created essence of love to some sort of disturbance and upset, and you think you can regain it, you know, if you think you can regain the truth of your being, the thing you really want, if you think you can restore yourself to the active presence of love, by getting somebody to fulfill a goal for you, do you think you can do that by getting someone to fulfill a goal for you? 
your mind is bizarre. Course says let go. All the things you think you want, your trifling treasures put away. What happens when you put them away? The perception that you have is the driver that causes your mind to use untoward energies to build your perception. So when you remove the dryer, driver, pardon me, perception collapses. And this particular lesson 164 says, and then you leave a clean and open space within your mind for Christ to come. This and only this is the core of how you forgive. Now, as I said, if you're going to drive a car, there are wheels, there's a steering wheel, there's an engine, lots of variables, but their basic principles are there. If somebody tells me, oh, I just forgive by, uh, well, you know, I just, I just kind of remember that, you know, the offense never happened. That's what, an answer I've heard from people. Excuse me. No, that's remembering that the offense never truly happened. That's not forgiveness. I, I mean, when I've asked people, and I've asked many, many, many people, how do you forgive? They'll tell me they have, and they'll go, well, well, you know, well, you know, you just forgive. No, there are steps to it. There's an object of attention. There are steps to forgiveness. There's an object of attention. Somebody or something you're focused on, perhaps yourself, perhaps the world situation, perhaps a particular person, and you have a goal for them. Your trifling treasure. Now you put it away. You cancel your goal. In Aramaic, the word forgive is shebag. It means to cancel. You cancel your goal. And now that your trifling treasure is put away, your pained perception, the whole false world that you've generated, collapses in on itself. And when it collapses in on itself, it gives you access to the memory of what's beneath the pain. And now that you have a clean and open space where perception usually shows up, the pain is dissolved by the active presence of love. You remember the Course talks about you must remember the distorting power of the way you want it to be. To forgive is to cancel, to put away the things you think you want those things that are currently, those goals that are currently driving your perception. When your perception collapses, it collapses as a result of canceling the goal that drives it. And at least for an instant in that moment, your alter, your conscious mind, the place you can alter, not A-L-T-A-R, but A-L-T-E-R things, is left free of what you placed on it collapsing in on itself, the root of your perception is exposed, and if love is present, that root dissolves automatically, instantly. There are a variety of ways to do this. This is how it's done. And then what the Course says is the world you do not want is brought to the one you do. And when that Errant thought is brought forward in the presence of active love. It is dissolved 
and forgiveness occurs. It is removed. Check out the lesson, What is the World, on our YouTube channel. And create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. And blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Mind Shifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.